Good evening. I'm Sergio Verdu, Chair of the uh, University Public Lectures Committee, and uh, I would like to welcome everyone to tonight's Farnum Lecture. This is a lecture series with a long tradition in Princeton. It was founded in 1939 by a bequest of George L. Farnum of the class of 1894 in memory of his brother, J. Edward Farnum of the class of 1890. Farnum, uh, who died in 1917, was an explorer for whom strange people and customs held a fascination. In 1897, he traveled from Beijing to Vladivostok, 700 miles of which had never before been traversed by a European. Tonight's speaker will be introduced by a former Farnum lecturer, Professor William Howarth, of the Department of English, a member of the faculty since 1966 and a founding member of the Princeton Environmental Institute. Professor Howarth writes on eco-criticism, environmental literature, and history. Professor Howarth. Thank you and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and also uh, wonderful to see how many of you turned out tonight to hear our speaker. As you heard, the Farnham lecturer commemorates um, a member of the class of 1890 who was a global explorer and who was drawn to distant people and places. Yifu Tuan is a lifelong student of places, and he comes to that task from all the compass directions east, west, and north-south. He has lived a very cosmopolitan life. He was born in China and educated there, and also in Australia and in the Philippines. He took a bachelor's and master's degree at Oxford and a PhD from the University of California at Berkeley. He has taught at six major universities in North America, Indiana, Chicago, New Mexico, Toronto, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. He's now an emeritus professor from Wisconsin. His honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, an award of merit from the American Association of Geographers, the Cullum Medal by the American Geographical Association. He is a fellow of many academic societies, including the AAAS. And he is not only a famous scholar, but very respected as a teacher before his retirement in 1998, the University of Wisconsin Student Association named him as the best professor on the campus. The American writer Ambrose Bierce once defined a geographer as, quote, a chap who can tell you offhand the difference between the outside of the world and the inside. Bierce was being ironic and yet in his long career, Professor Tuan has done exactly that. He has shown that the earth also works upon our ideas and our emotions. He has been a pioneer in the field of human geography, working across disciplinary boundaries and connecting many fields, from geography to psychology, philosophy, planning, landscape studies, and anthropology. There is a strong moral and ethical direction to his ideas. 
His 16 books include studies of landscapes of fear, environmental perception, the experience of space and place, the relations of nature and culture, the link between land and spirituality, land and political ideas. And then he has also written about much more unusual topics for an earth scientist. The making of pets, the good life, the nature of progress, the consciousness of self and group, of the near and far, of duty and escapism. All of these studies are graced with wit, candor, eloquent prose, and original ideas. Since retiring, he has also written an autobiography, Who Am I?, which explores his lifelong fascination with the relationships between emotion, mind, and spirit. Tonight's lecture will be published in March of 2004 by the Center for American Places. And those of you who may want to have a copy of tonight's lecture, if you would come to me afterwards, I'd be glad to take your name and address so that you are notified when the publication appears. Tonight, Professor Tuan will speak to us on place, art, and self. He will argue that the places we call home provide us with an enduring sense of identity. In one of, in one of its many self-congratulatory songs, Princeton calls itself the best old place of all. Whether that's so or not, I am very proud to welcome Prof Professor Tuan to Princeton. Thank you, Professor Howarth, Professor Verdu, and the Public Lectures Committee for inviting me. I'm very deeply honored to be here. So the topic is place, art, and self. Geographers are concerned with place, artists and historians with art, psychologists and philosophers with self. What do place, art, and self have in common? To what extent do place and art define who we are? I propose to explore these topics, beginning with the human attachment to place. How firm is it, and how does it vary from person to person? Place, geographical place, is a material environment. It can be natural, as for example, an unspoiled forest, and it can be, to varying degree, artifactual. Everything from a thatched hut to a glass and steel high rise. In the process of considering place as an architectural artwork, we may be led to ask whether other artworks, such as a painting, poem, story, or musical composition, can also be a place, virtual place. Isn't it true that we pause between them rest in them, and are in one sense or another nurtured by them as we rest and are nurtured by the towns and cities we live in. The word nurture says two things about us. 
that we feed on places and artworks, and that so fed we grow. The self, in other words, is not fixed. We continue to discover who we are as we open ourselves to new sources of nurture and experience. Obvious as this sounds, it needs restatement in order to counter the fashionable view, which finds surprising acceptance even in mobile America, that somehow a firm sense of self depends on being rooted. Of course, a degree of stability must hold for place and art to work their magic. But rootedness is not the answer, if only because it sets the self into a mold too soon. Mobility carried to excess, on the other hand, makes it difficult, if not impossible, for a strong sense of self to gel. A self that is coherent and firm, yet capable of growth, would seem to call for an alteration of stillness and motion, stability and change, place and space, the duration of which of each being calibrated by culture and individual temperament. Let me return to my initial question, which is how firmly or lightly are people attached to place? Representing the firm end are the testimonies of Charles Lamb and Philip Larkin. Representing the light end is the testimony of Hugo Williams. Lamb wrote, and I quote, I'm in love with this green earth, the face of town and country, the unspeakable rural solitude, and the sweet security of streets. I would set up my tabernacle here. I'm content to stand still at the age to which I'm arrived. Any alteration on this earth of mine, in diet or lodging, puzzles and decomposes me. My household gods plant a terrible fixed foot and are not rooted up without blood. More matter-of-factly, Philip Larkin wrote, I wouldn't mind seeing China if I could come back the same day. <laughs> I hate being abroad. Generally speaking, the further one gets from home, the greater the misery. At the opposite pole from Lamb and Larkin is the much younger man, Hugo Williams. I hate landscaping my life as far as the eye can see, he said when he was 21 years old. Rather than make plans for a post-college world tour, he left chance to decide pretty much where he was to be next. At Haifa, he stopped at shipping offices in the hope of finding work. I didn't care in which direction I went, he recalled, as any voyage would have taken me on my way. At one point in his aimless drifting, he found himself at the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It was late in the night. The boat put down anchor. Passengers relaxed, including Williams, who was able to enjoy the warm night, the fireflies, the night birds, the bobbing luminous floats of the fisher boats, 
the shooting stars between the masts, and laughs in a strange language. For the first time, he noticed how very far he was from home, a thought that, I quote, gave him almost physical pleasure. Reading these and other accounts have made me wonder, where do I put myself on the scale of attachment to place? My own life path shows that I'm neither rooted like Lamp and Locking, nor driven to trap the world like Williams. Yet I not only understand, but I can feel the tug of both positions. It may be that whatever people say, such bipolar tug is common. It is in fact human. Lamp and Locking must have known sometime the call of open space, just as Williams must have known the call of home. On the attachment scale, points in the middle range are necessarily ambiguous. But I've come to see that the extremities are not as firm as I thought, for they contain the seed of their opposite. Take home. To the young child, it is not only a familiar and nurturing place. It is also a space that invites exploration Grown-ups forget that when they were little, a trip to the attic or basement could be an adventure, and that camping overnight in the backyard had the same sort of thrill they now have camping in the wilds of Alaska. The special appeal of our childhood home, as distinct from homes we have occupied later in life, lies in its catering to the bipolar pool of our nature. As for the restless spirits, perhaps even more than other people, they need the sucker of home, if only as the point of departure. Some of the world's greatest explorers have left accounts of home whose mawkishness contrasts sharply with the cool prose they use to describe hair-raising adventures. Here's the Norwegian explorer, Frithof Nansen, noting how he felt as he left home for the motor launch that would take him to the ship Frame, which in turn was to take him and his crew to the North Pole. Behind me lay all I held dear in life, and what before me? How many years would pass before I should see it all again? What would I not have given at that moment to be able to turn back? Hibernating in a hut on Franz Joseph land, Nansen thought of his wife and daughter. He wrote in his diary, December 19, 1895. There she sits in the winter's evening, sewing by lamplight. Beside her stands a young girl's blue eyes and golden hair, playing with a doll. She looks tenderly at the child. Her eyes grow moist, and heavy tears fall on her sewing. An explorer's camp is home, primitive, no doubt, but all the more home-like by contrast with nature's indifference and hostility. Leaving camp on October the 29th, 1908, for the track to the South Pole, Ernest Shackleton wrote, 
As we left the hut where we had spent so many months in comfort, we had a feeling of real regret. It was dark outside. The acetylene was feeble in comparison with the sun outside, and it was small compared to ordinary dwelling. Yet we were sad leaving it. Last night, as we were sitting at dinner, the evening sun entered through the ventilator, and a circle of light shone on the picture of the queen. If we feel a certain fascination for explorers and exploration, it may be because all of us are embarked on the journey of life. We are on the move, one that is relieved by pauses, each of which produces a somewhat familiar world, a place even if this is just a camp in the Arctic wilds. The longer pauses produce homes or home-like places. While this is a good enough characterization of our journey through space, it fits less well with our journey through time. In the journey through time, there is no pause, not even in sleep. We become older every second and move inexorably to our final destination, death. Recognizing this fact makes us anxious, and so we don't. For most of us, Time, rather than moving forward smoothly and steadily, is punctuated by stasis, during which we seem hardly to move or age at all. Young children, for example, feel that a year is an eternity. And though young adulthood passes quickly, once middle age is reached, time dawdles so that even as the years roll impeccably by, we see little change in ourselves. At the level of common experience then, both space and time can seem discontinuous. Stasis are needed to recuperate, but also to take stock of what the world is like and who we are. What is the world like? It is mostly made up of stable, material things, Mallets that stay put, Alice might say, so that she can play croquet properly. As for our identity, it is anchored in common objects and experiences to a degree we seldom acknowledge. Think how posture is shaped by furniture. Spatial intuition, tutored by the daily triangulation of tree, telephone pole, and fence in the backyard. Sensorial memories added to on a regular basis by the skyline silhouetted against the evening sky. The aroma of clothes drying in the sun, the odor of gas fumes on a busy street, the sound of lawn mowers in summer and of snow blowers in winter. Home is a house and in the larger sense, a neighborhood, hometown, country, and ultimately, the earth. Our identity expands and is enriched as the places in which we feel at home, if only temporarily, are multiplied. This seems to say that identity changes over time, that we are one sort of person when young 
and another sword when mature or old. Though obviously true as judged by certain objective measures, subjectively we may feel that through it all we remain essentially the same person. Are we or are we not the same person? Do we lose our integrity if we change? That a child's self is unformed and fluid doesn't bother us. For childhood is properly a time to try on different roles. But maturity, if it means anything, means that we know at last who we are. We cannot have integrity, act dependably so that others can depend on us unless we have a stable self. Change is clearly good if it means putting away childish things. But change is loss and disintegration in life. Downward path to death is unwelcome. The ambiguity toward change in the self is carried over toward change in the environment, which is understandable given the intimate bond between the two. In a confused and contradictory way, we want the world we live in and ourselves to show both integrity and dynamism. Our neighborhood retain the character of fond memories, yet our town and city to prosper and grow. The degree that we can have both depends in part on scale. A place of the size of a city can change radically within a decade. Take downtown Minneapolis, my home, for 14 years. I left it for Madison, Wisconsin in 1983. In the next three to four years, I could still regard Minneapolis as home. And then it became impossible. Too many new skyscrapers sprouted up in the 1980s, displacing or totally dwarfing the landmarks I knew. In their absence, the years I lived there have lost shape, detail, and vividness. As the city is no longer quite the same city, so I, with the blurring of an important period of my past, am no longer quite the same person. Yet, if I cannot consider Minneapolis, if I do not consider Minneapolis but the state of Minnesota as home, it, the state, still supports my sense of self. For though its cities have grown and more highways now threaded, the 10,000 lakes that give Minnesota its physical character remain more or less intact. Beyond country and nation state are the still larger entities that may be considered home, culminating in the Earth's home for all living things. Increasingly, people believe that the integrity of the Earth itself is under threat, a belief that is fueled by disturbing images and reports from outer space. For example, astronaut Frank Culbertson told us in September of 2001 that from his window in the International Space Station, he could see that our planet has more dust than smoke and less forested areas since his last mission in 1990. Even after a short lapse of time, Culbertson must have felt that he cannot return home to a cleaner Earth again. In some people's minds, 
the question arises whether such deterioration of the global ecosystem can continue without affecting the physical and moral soundness of the human species as a whole. I have been emphasizing the importance of place, the ties to place. But if so, why do many people look forward to traveling? Is the movement is being intrinsic and itself enjoyable? Or does true satisfaction lie in the pauses, encounters, and states of being that can occur sometimes unexpectedly in the course of travel? Pilgrimage is, of course, directed to a goal the journey being merely the means to it. But is travel for pleasure all that different? It too has to terminate in a desirable place. True, the word tour, as in the Caribbean tour, suggests otherwise. Yet one may still wonder, are not the exotic ports of call the high points of any tour? If they are not, if being on the ship as it moves through the waters is the more rewarding experience, isn't this because the ship itself has become a place able to offer comfort and stimulation? The importance of a place depends notably on how long we have lived or worked in it. Permanent places accumulate more sentiment and play a greater role in our sense of self than do places we merely visit or pass through. Yet there are exceptions. A major motivation for travel, hardships notwithstanding, is the vague expectation of entering a state of being identified with a particular place or landscape that, however transient, reveals an aspect of our character that we have not previously known. Consider again Hugo Williams. He bummed around the world, staying in small villages and big cities as chance and opportunity took him. No doubt these places had significance for him. Some were anticipated. After all, he could hardly go to Mecca or Alice Springs without anticipating certain kinds of experience. Still, among the most memorable were unplanned godsends. His night at the mouth of the Tigris and Euphrates was one. What a moment of self-revelation it must have been for this young man to realize that home could be a small boat in the Middle East, relaxing among fellow passengers who spoke a language he didn't understand. Williams hated landscaping his life to as far as the eyes can see. I, for my part, have always wanted to landscape my life for fear of disorientation. At Williams's age, I seldom did anything without purpose. I traveled as widely as he, but always with a goal in mind. Yet the unexpected did happen. Most of them I could do without, like a flat tire. A few 
I embraced as gifts out of the blue, revealing aspects of myself that would otherwise remain hidden. These gifts usually came to me in human shape or as artwork. Once, however, it came as a landscape. During winter break 1952, some Chinese students and I decided that we should try that old American pastime, camping, camping out. We left Berkeley for Death Valley National Monument early one morning in the expectation that we would get there before dark. Our car broke down in Fresno and took hours to fix. It was late in the night when we arrived at our destination. A strong wind rose that made our amateurish attempts at raising a tent futile. In the end, we simply slept in our sleeping bags, exposed to the wind and dust. Opening my eyes many hours later, I was shocked into full wakefulness by lunar beauty. The first rays of the morning sun turned Death Valley's west wall into a phantasmagoria of shimmering mauves, purples, and golds. Extraterrestrial, too, were the sailing flats on the valley floor, immaculately white, and stark sculptural reliefs unsoiled by life. Death Valley is a tourist attraction. Many go there for its visual novelty, its strangeness, for me, it has always been far more. In my very first encounter with the desert, I felt as though I had met my geographical double, the, geogra the objective correlative of the person I am, absent the social facade. I didn't make much of the experience at the time, but as years passed, I began to wonder how it compared with my encounters with works of art. More generally, I wondered about the kinship between place and the arts. Not so much how certain places seem to encourage art, or how the arts have influenced the way we perceive place, but how the arts themselves are places, virtual places. Hints of their kinship are many, Figures of speech that might be applied to place, such as a quiet pool in the river of time, or a rest stop in the journey of life, apply equally well to certain genres of art. Place is a center of meaning, primarily positive meaning. The same can be said of art. Place is different things to different people, as of course is art. Some people take place and art seriously, they may make a conscious effort to preserve or enrich them. Others are indifferent. But this is more apparent than real. Witness the feeling of laceration when for some reason they have to leave a familiar place. Witness also their attachment to comely objects, comely as I see it, and their readiness to use the expletive among the young in particular, and here, excuse me, and their readiness to use the expletive shit when their world threatens to become too chaotic, threatening, unesthetic. 
consciously or subconsciously, place is felt to have import. The ultimate source of this feeling is nurture and identity. At a minimum, place offers shade and water, one example being the water hole in the desert, another being a rest stop by the highway. As for the arts, why do we dwell on them if they don't, in some sense, feed and strengthen us? A painter's special challenge, Bernard Berenson once noted, is, and I quote, to convey more rapidly and unfailingly than nature would do the consciousness of an unusually intense degree of well-being. I read him to say that if a fine wine can make us feel good, a fine painting should do no less. Besides providing nurture, place is an important source of our identity, a key to who we are. To the question, what sort of person are you? I can imagine the poet W.H. Auden pointing to limestone for answer. Similarly addressed, I would point to the desert. The desert and I are one. In it, I see lineaments of my psychological nature. The arts are likewise emblematic and revelatory. The ones I strongly like and dislike expose me, make me feel naked before the public eye, which is why I'm guarded in my confessions. Of course, place and arts also differ. One difference is that whereas in life I can't go home again, in art I often can. The actual home, a house, neighborhood, town, or city, is likely to be altered by subsequent occupants and their builders. Even the desert will lose its physical integrity as population continues to increase. By contrast, a painting or sculpture, other than the stains and scars of time, stays much the same. To it, I can return. Another difference is that whereas we are steeped in place, we are always somewhat outside of art. Place is experienced multisensorially, art in one or two senses. Knowing place, and especially knowing the home place, is less intellectual than knowing or appreciating art. Place is more conservative for these reasons. Charles Lamb cannot bear to be anywhere but in his England. Outside England, he's more likely to find deficiencies that diminish his sense of self than novelty that enhance and expand it. Art is a discovery rather than a given. We humans aren't born into art as we are born into a home. One discovery in art may well lead to another. Mozart prepares me for Beethoven. The self is static if it is produced by home place and only home place. Flexible and expensive if it is also nurtured by art. Place too has the power to open one's eyes to the new. But if so, it is because place even a familiar place does not just 
have to be a soporific cocoon of comforts and habits. Long residence notwithstanding, a home may still have the power to reveal the new in the manner of art. For example, after a violent thunderstorm, one may be surprised by the stillness in the air, enhanced rather than detracted by the music of raindrops falling on a puddle. The vivid, slightly threatening quality of the yellow sky over the roof and the renewed appreciation mixed with gratitude for a house that stands four square undaunted. In what ways do paintings serve as virtual places, surrogate places? Consider strolling through a picture gallery. The stroll produces fatigue and a sense of futility if there are no paintings worth looking at. In this regard, it is like life whose winding course can seem listless and barren unless places exist that make us pause in affection, disbelief, or wonder. Of the different genres of painting exhibited in a gallery, is there one that holds special appeal? Naturally, the answer varies with the individual. I offer mine so that others, you, may be prompted to look into yourselves and offer yours. I tend to pause longer between portraits of people than before pictures of buildings and landscapes. This would be a damning confession for a geographer, except that I see the human being as a special type of place. It is a place to the extent that one can find haven and animal, animal warmth in rounded limbs. Young people prove my point when in love they leap over the walls to seek happiness in each other's arms. As for built places, Dutch interiors of the 17th century, known to me through Vermeer's paintings, appeal to me for the same reason that they appeal to other members of the property middle class. Sunlight pouring into room full of well-cared-for well objects, a water jar here, a mandolin there, a map on the wall, invites me to dream of civilized comfort and cozy intimacy that nevertheless open out to a capacious world beyond. I like deeply humanized landscape too. Who doesn't? Constables, contented cows in England's pasture screen subtly persuade me that sloths mildly indulged may be a virtue. Nevertheless, the landscapes I identify with the, with the most are the strenuous ones of desert and ice. Proof lies in the fact that whereas only a Vermeer or a constable will stop me in my track, merely competent renditions of desert and ice can do so too. Suppose life is a stroll through a gallery of photographs rather than of paintings. What would be the difference? How does the photograph differ from the painting as a virtual place? The subjects depicted may be the same. 
And so the feelings toward them may be similar. <coughs> similar, however, is not the same. The difference being a consequence of the viewer's subconscious awareness of how paintings and photographs are made. A photograph is of the moment, an interruption in the flow of time captured on film that becomes a stable place for one to dwell in and return to should one so wish. Such freezing of moment was never possible before the invention of the modern camera. Wordsworth, crossing the Alps in 1790, very much wanted to retain images of the many scenes that enthralled him, but he couldn't. Now we can. When the camera is defective, and none of the pictures we have taken on our vacation trip comes out, we feel dismay. Understandably, for without the images and pauses, without these places, it is so we have not made the trip. Absent experiences that we can hold on to, it could seem that time just sweeps us along from one moment to the next, and so on to the last one that ushers in death. Of course, many artists have attempted to capture the passing moment on canvas. Nevertheless, when we look at the painting of a woman pouring tea, we know we're not catching a moment in the millions that pass in the course of a day, but rather at an image that the artist has constructed at leisure in his studio. By contrast, when we look at a photograph of the same scene, we do so knowing that had the camera clicked a minute earlier or later, tea would not have flowed from the teapot. Three other strains of awareness add to the realism and poignancy of a photograph. One is the sense that the photograph of, say, an old house retains something of the house's physical reality. It was the sunlight of a particular hour and place and not the aesthetic calculation that worked over the chemically treated film to produce what we see. Second, is the awareness that at least some of the details in the photograph, the bird on the telephone wire, the paper cup on top of the fridge, are unplanned that just happened to be there. Third, is the awareness of the arbitrariness of a photographic frame. Looking at the photograph of a city street, I find myself wondering what the rest of the town looks like, a drift of thought that does not occur when I look at a painting. In other words, I take the painting to be, to be more contained and self-referencing, and so in those regards, more like a bounded geographical place. For those who love poetry, a poem invites one to pause catch up with oneself and the world before being swept back into the rush of life. As with a painting in the gallery, a poem that is printed and anthologized is always potentially available for one to savor, live in, and return to. Nowhere are these possibilities more eloquently explained, explored than in Wordsworth's famous poem, Tintern Abbey. 
The poem tells of Wordsworth going back to the Wye Valley after an absence of five years to behold once again these steep and lofty cliffs, these pastoral farms green to the very door. So in his time, at least, it was possible to revisit, to revisit the landscape and find it unchanged. The poem also speaks of a return in imagination, caught in the dreariness of a town or city. Wordsworth consoles himself with the thought of the good man's little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and love, and with the memory of a blessed mood in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened. Wordsworth knows that even as the valley remains much the same, he himself has changed and will change. I cannot paint what I then was. The time is past when the something cataract haunted me like a passion. But he does not regret the loss, for other gifts have accrued to provide abundant recompense, one of them being the ability to garner in nature's presence a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky. Note how place has exploded beyond pastoral farms green to the very door, to setting sun, ocean, and sky. Only so can a particular place, such as Wye Valley, be liberating rather than, in the end, constricting. What if the art form is not a totality capable of being revealed at once, but is rather something that unfolds over time? In other words, can a novel, novel that takes hours or even days to read be the same sort of resting place as a poem? A novel that we dutifully plot through is not restful, I submit. It's, it is too much like life, one inconsequential incident after another. Yet, even within such a novel, there may be pages that work on our sensibility, as the poem does, making us aware of a presence of mood to which we may wish to return. I have to confess that I do not willingly reread a novel from page, first page to last, no more than I would wish to relive my life in its entirety. But I do return again and again to a particular evocation in a novel, as I do to a particular memory in life. Evocation of what? Sometimes a human encounter, such as that between the two brothers in the Grand Inquisitor chapter of the Brothers Karamazov, sometimes a place such as Picotty's Boathouse at Yarmus in David Copperfield. Even a good novel, however, has few passages that invite, that invite the ruminative pause. Most of it, necessarily, is given over to moving characters from here to there, from one event to the next. Indeed, the adventure story demands a fast-moving plot, a clipped narrative pace. My point is, if we ever reread an adventure story, it cannot be for the plot, it can only be for the atmosphere. 
by now. I know very well who done it in the Sherlock Holmes stories. I know well, too, Holmes's world of fog and handsome caps. The plot I may well tie off with repetition, but I do not tire of Holmes's world with greater familiarity, no more, no more than I tire of home. The art of the motion picture compels me to make another confession. Although I seldom reread a novel from beginning to end, I do periodically rewatch the entire film. Why is not immediately clear? For the motion picture, like the novel and life itself, is captive to the relentlessness of sequential time. True, I have a good practical reason to rewatch a film, the need to, to catch dialogues and gestures that I missed in the first round. Putting it thus suggests that I'm interested primarily in the plot. Sometimes this is the case, but not always. Other times I rewatch the entire film in the belief that only so can I recapture the mood of a place and to recapture it more completely than I can if I only look at individual scenes. A movie is rich in incidents. Time passes and locations change as they do in a novel and in actual life. What holds the incidents together? What makes the film two or three hours long seem all of a piece? Of course, the incidents and characters may not hold together. Films fail in this regard, as novels do. However, I believe that their success rate is greater because a motion picture director has two methods of unification at his disposal that are unavailable to the novelist. One is color. A director may choose to film in black and white, as in Francois Truffaut's The Wild Child, in yellow and brownish hues, as in David Lin's Lawrence of Arabia, in the white, blacks, and blues of winter, as in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. A motion picture would not necessarily seem disjointed without a dominant color scheme, but with it, a certain character is imparted to the whole that insinuates itself into the viewer's subconscious awareness. The second method available to the film director is sound. He can choose a variety of background musics to heighten the emotional charge of a human encounter, place or landscape, and an overarching theme played here and there throughout the film to give the entire story, no matter how diverse its elements, a sense of unity. Dance is motion, the opposite of stasis, the pause that makes place possible and is its signature. Moreover, dance is heightened or purified motion, which means that it is less well suited in comparison with other art forms to evoking the common places of life. This is an important distinction for home lies at the center of any conception of a cozy, sickly human place. Consider a woman picking up her child's toys, a man reading the newspaper, and such like activities of daily existence. What arts can incorporate them matter-of-factly without self-conscious artiness? 
I would say the pictorial and literary arts. <clears throat> Even of poetry, this is true, and true despite its formal rhymes and vocation for heightened feeling. Dance would seem to be the exception. Home, however, is only one type of place. Other types of place offer surprise and wonder and have no touch of hominess in them. It is in surprise and wonder that dance comes to its own. The pedestrian flow of time, the gestures and movements of routine life come to a stop when we look at motion intensified, purified, transfigured, that is dance. The word stop, like the words pause and stasis, is critical to place. Dance, it goes without saying, is the opposite of stasis. Yet dance too becomes place when its movements create a temporal pattern that we can apprehend as a whole and of which we feel momentarily a part. Moreover, within the dance itself, there are breath-catching pauses, places. Think of the part de that culminates in a composite figure of supreme elegance held for only a second or two, or of a male dancer's leap into space and hang there in midair for it could seem longer than is physically possible. These pauses are among the peak moments in classical ballet and modern dance. Paradoxically, they are what motion strives toward, just as one, as one might say, paradoxically, that a goal of music is to give life to the intervals of silence. Music occurs in time and might be expected to remind listeners of time's inexorable passage. Yet this is not so. Music seems able to annul time, converting it into an atemporal presence, a virtual place, with its insistent beat as in popular music, its wave-like flow as in the music of Middle Ages. Strangely enough, this is true even in music imbued, imbued with directional energy, as with much that was composed in the early modern period. And music with a storyline, say, from darkness to light, as was characteristic of Beethoven's heroic style. Despite the arrow-like direction of Beethoven's music, its sense of development is reaching out to a conclusion of great power. Listening to it again and again feels more like re-immersing oneself in a desired presence than following in a plot in the hope of learning something new. Music bears repetition, invites repetition to a degree unmatched by the pictorial and literary arts. That's our song, we say nostalgically, but not so far as I know. That's our landscape painting, or that's our novel. <clears throat> Do many people read even their favorite novel more than once? How many return to an art gallery a dozen times a year just to see one or two favorite paintings? Yet quite ordinary people, and not just the musically sophisticated, return to the concert hall again and again to listen to a favorite song cycle or symphony. And that explains the wisdom of having a powerful musical theme in a motion picture, 
For it may well be that what lures the viewer back for a second or third viewing is a mood, a place's atmosphere that the music helps to create. Music is home. Like our brick-and-mortar home, we do not tire of returning to it. Yet, unlike that home whose appeal lies in its familiarity and ordinariness, music is also serenity and exaltation, a soaring of the spirit that is quite out of the ordinary. <clears throat> the mystery of music, then, <clears throat> is that <clears throat> it can be both a place that nurtures the biosocial roots of self, as, for instance, a popular tune laced with spoony lyrics and pure compositions of sound that, in their unearthly beauty, remind the self that its ultimate dwelling is elsewhere. A fetish slogan since the 1960s is back to roots, <coughs> the idea being that one can't know who one is <coughs> unless one's rooted in kinfolk and place. I myself find longshoreman Eric Hoffer's view more congenial and more true. He notes, a plant needs roots to grow. With men, it is the other way around. Only when he grows does he have roots and feel at home in the world. In pre-modern societies, identity is seldom a worry. People don't go around asking who they are. They know who they are. They are the son or daughter of so-and-so. Membership in a lineage or group is the single most important guarantor of identity. Next in importance is occupation. A person is a smith, miller, tailor, cook, carpenter, or wheelwright. Thirdly, one is one's native place, an identification that in Europe seems confined to aristocrats. One's, for example, the Marquis of Milford Haven or the Duke of Windsor. All these ways of naming, but especially the last two, emphasize social status. A Marquis or Duke is not someone who possesses marketable skills. He is first and foremost a landowner. Hence, he identifies first and foremost with land or place. In a deeper sense, however, everyone does so, if only because ancestral and kinship ties, occupations and social standing linked to them all have to exist somewhere and that somewhere is place, and especially home place. Back to roots is back to one's home place, where group belongingness matters more than an individual's sense of who he or she is. Much of the yearning for roots in the modern and postmodern world is thus not so much a yearning for a greater sense of self as a yearning to numb one's troubled self-awareness in group identity. But this is by no means the whole picture. The belief also exists, particularly in the United States, that one's hometown, despite its set ways, can promote individualism. How? 
Remember that home to a young child is not just a familiar place, it is also space. Rich in shadowy corners, below stairways, and in the attic that invite exploration. Beyond home is the neighborhood, town, and surrounding countryside. A composite arrangement of streets and shops, workplaces and schools, churches and community centers, shaded wood streams, and waterholes. In the United States, nostalgia is directed at this landscape of the recent past. Everyone may feel it to some degree, but American men are likely to feel it the most. For in the early part of the 20th century, most were able to grow up in a landscape that was safe yet, and yet full of opportunity for boyish adventure. Hometown, for all its homely virtues, and even because of them, can stunt growth. Opportunities there for self-discovery may be ample for the growing child, but they do not suffice for the mature human being. Much as American law praises hometown, it nevertheless has its young men and women abandon it for the larger world. In the larger world, which is usually the city, but it could also be the wilderness, they find who they are. Similar laws exist in other other societies, a major precondition being the fairly common occurrence of upward social mobility. Who I am is far more than how the local place defines us, is the basic idea. For example, had I never left my hometown in humid eastern China, I would never have known my desert personality, never have discovered the desert is in a sense my truer home. And of course, if I had not savored other countries and cultures, I could never have known my deep affinity for the works of Beethoven, C.S. Lewis, Simone Weil, and of motion pictures such as Gone with the Wind and Le Rousseau Sauvage. These are as much my homes, my sources of comfort and inspiration as the houses and geographical places I've lived in. But isn't this multiplicity of homes a sign of personality disintegration? To an outsider, it might seem so. Not, however, to me, nor to my friends, for whom each confession of a new love on my part causes some initial surprise, only to say, after a pause, how like you, how like you. The sense of my, I have of myself grows stronger, not weaker, as the number and variety of artworks and places that speak to the core of my being expand. Yet, doubts linger of which two come to the fore. One is the inescapable isolation of the individual, an isolation that increases as a person's individuality is developed and refined. Even as a merge with another in our shared love of Beethoven, I see that Gone with the Wind divides us like a grand canyon. To me, the film is high romance, perhaps because I first saw it as a starry-eyed child. But to one who saw it as an adult, it could seem the sugar-coating of an ignoble past and the worst kind of fantasy. 
My second doubt, less widely shared, arises from the conviction that life is a serious journey to a goal, and not, as it too often is, a Caribbean tour. In such a tour, each port of call may be not only delightful, but also educational, in that it enables us to discover both world and self. Yet, in the end, we return to where we started, satiated rather than wiser. Perhaps this is the point where geography ends and religion begins. Geography is about place, about being at home on earth, whereas any true religion strives to remind us of our homelessness. Let's see if uh, we have a few questions for Professor Tuan. Uh, the three words, the three words in your title, um, I think there are space, art, and self. They are certainly not in equal footing. And you are trying to use the self to describe your experience of the first two. But in the end, it is why you ask the question, who are you or who, who am I? That's most important. Now, although from time to time you refer to the importance of time, like including the example you use of pouring tea or homelessness, but in the end, it's the human awareness of his own limited time in this universe that make you seek all this art, seek all this space. So it seems that you did not touch time, but I think time is really at the basic of all these pursuits. I wonder, would you care to comment on it? Yes. <laughs> um, somehow I've got into the habit of everything in threes, possibly because I've been teaching a long time. And when I say there are four points, I always forget the fourth. So I probably should have included place, art, time, and self. I did introduce time. Indeed, time is central to it. I'm talking about stasis, pause in time, as a notion which is somewhat strange to geographers because we think of place as located in space, and time is kind of a subsidiary notion. So time is important uh, to my, my whole presentation and to the sense of self uh, and identity. But um, uh, if I have um, a, a contribution in any sense is the, uh, the insistence, uh, which is uh, perhaps not all that unusual, that the, the significance of time I mean, it's a significant place to us. It's not just something that depends on the passage of time. I mean, that seems the basic notion. And generally, this is true. I mean, the longer you stay in 
Princeton, the more Princeton means something to is your place. But I'm saying that this is not the whole story, that one of the um, desirable things about traveling, moving, is that unexpectedly you run into places, into landscapes. And the experience you have is like almost like falling in love. Um, you fall in love with someone that you have never met before, and you have not known that this is the person for you. And yet this happens, and I'm saying it happens with places too. That, that place is not just marriage, um, holding hands and um, chatting before bed, and that's of course an important part of it too. But place is, also has this romantic dimension in that it can happen at first sight. Thanks. You talked about uh, discovering then your identification and your love for the desert. So does that imply that that was already there, then that you just found it when you went to the desert, or could it have been uh, satisfied by something else? Or how, what do you mean by that? Well, um, what surprises me is that desert was no part of my experience. I've never lived in a desert. Of course, I read about it in, in books and so on. So it's not a part of my world. Um, and I was curious about Death Valley National Monument because it's famous. Uh, and I happened to have seen it in this dramatic way in the morning. And I, well, of course, it's a strange landscape. People go there for that reason. But as I try to say, for me, it's more than that. It's, it's almost like going home. It's a kind of recognition that, that this is my world, my place. I'll be happy to live there. Um, and... Um, that's, that's my, my falling in love with place. Uh, rather than a friendship that grows over time, um, as for instance, I've grown very fond of medicine because over time I've grown fond of it. But I certainly didn't fall in love with it at first sight. It was marriage that worked in the long run. Okay, let us uh, thank Professor Twans once more. Thank you.